1: The following program is a podcast1.com production. He's a world champion wrestler, best-selling author, actor, and lead singer of Fozzie. Now, now he's rocking the podcast world. This, this this is Talk Is Jericho. Talk is Jericho. Starring Chris Jericho.
2: Welcome to Talk Is
3: Jericho. I am Chris Jericho and this is the remedy for boredom. Jerichoholics, how the hell are you doing this week? Did you have did you have a good week? Well, no matter what happened, good or bad, this is going to be a tremendous edition of the Pod of Thunder and Rock and Roll. Sad to say that uh, WWE wrestling legend, uh, well, actually not just WWE, all across the world wrestling legend, May Young passed away last week at 90 years old. I uh, had a lot of people ask me to tell some May Young stories, which I will at the end of the show today. We're going to get into a little bit of May. She was a very special lady, and I met her back in 1992. Going to talk all about that. Plus, today's guest, New York Ranger legend, Ted Irvin, will be on the show to discuss old-time hockey Ted not only has amazing stories about everything from Bobby Orr to Bobby Clark to Wayne Gretzky to uh, Rod Gilbert and Dale Howarchuk and everybody else in between, but Ted Irvin, if the name sounds familiar, also happens to be my dad. What do you think of that? I'm having my dad on my own podcast, which I'm very excited about. And I told him, uh, Dad, you know, you're going to be on this week, so make sure you alert all of your social media following, which is zero. He's not on the Twitter... And he's not on Facebook or Instagram. I think he might be on MySpace, maybe. <laughs> but it's all right. I'm excited to have my dad on the show. He's got a lot of great stories. He's been telling me the same ones his whole life. So now he gets to tell them to you. Also, now this is coming up. We've got the Grammys are coming up very, very soon. And I'm really excited because I have a special guest to give his Grammy predictions. Oates's mustache will be calling in to give his Grammy predictions in just a few minutes. I mean, that is amazing. We started talking about Oates' mustache a few weeks ago when I announced that Hall & Oates will be going into the Rock & Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> I announced it like I was the one who announced it. Ladies and gentlemen, here are the Rock & Roll Hall of Fame nominees and inductees. Uh, no, I did not announce it. I read it in a newspaper and then announced it to all of you. But I was uh, you know, talking about how Hall & Oates may be going in as a trio with Oats's Mustache, who might be the most famous member of Hall & Uh Oates' Mustache contacted me. Actually, Oates' Mustache's people contacted me and asked if he could appear on the show. And I thought it would be funny to have him call in, or interesting at least, and give his Grammy Award predictions. You can follow Oats's Mustache at Oates' Mustache. And that is the truth. I believe they spell it M-O-U-S-T-A-C-H-E. Is that the proper spelling of mustache? Because the thing about Canada is sometimes there's a U put in it. Like favorite is F-A-V-O-U-R-I-T-E. And I know that the way that you Yankees here spell it, it's F-A-V-O-R-I-T-E. So there's a couple colorful is like that. So there's a few uh, words that have an extra U in them. And I believe mustache is one of them. M-O-U-S-T-A-C-H-E and then M-U-S-T-A-C-H-E. So let's see how you spell Oates' mustache on the Twitter. Yeah, so Oates' mustache is actually spelled at Oates. That's O-A-T-E-S mustache, M-O-U-S-T-A-C-H-E. So if you want to follow Oates' mustache on the Twitter, you can. Uh, but you's, you're going to hear about them today. And uh, first of all, first and foremost, I just want to give a, a raspberry to the powers that be at the Grammy Awards for never giving Hall and Oates and Oates' mustache a Grammy ever when they were regularly releasing records in the 80s. I mean, come on! How many hits did they have? So Grammy Award people, here's what we have for you here at Talk Is Jericho. Yeah, that's what you get. You should have given Hall & Oates a Grammy or two. I mean, come on! You gave Lionel Richie like eight Grammys in 1984. You couldn't have thrown one Hall & Oates' way? Once again, Grammy Awards selection people?
0: Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs. Containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.
3: All right, on the line right now to give some Grammy uh, facts and uh, Grammy predictions, we've got Oates's mustache. First of all, uh, Oates's mustache. I would like to congratulate you on being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Finally, after all this time, you and Hall and Oates getting inducted as a trio. I've heard. I mean, and that's just huge news. Uh, how do you feel about about what's going on with that?
2: First of all, I just want to say thank you for having me on the show. I'm a big fan of Talk is Jericho and all the wonderful things that you're doing in the podcast world. Congratulations to you. But I mean, it's just an amazing feeling for us to be going into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We've had a lot of ups and downs, and there's been a lot of animosity between uh, John and I over the years, and we've finally realized that there's two separate entities in this band, Uh, well, three if you include Daryl, but it's... In the 70s, everyone was partying and getting all messed up on the booze and the pills and chasing the ladies. But we've finally gotten older, and and, and now we've come to terms with each other, and we can tolerate each other. And it's a very good time to be uh, Oates' mustache, and it's a very good time to be in Hall and Oates uh, right now at this point in time.
3: Well, that's uh, amazing. I mean, I know, like you said, especially being in a band in the 70s, things were were quite crazy with all of the... You know, indulgences, shall we say. And, and I've heard that you were also quite the uh, lady's mustache. Uh, is that true as well? How was it for you back in those days? Uh, from, a, from a female standpoint.
2: Well, there was a saying in the 70s, uh, ladies love Oates' moustache. And believe me, I had all of the ladies. From some of the biggest stars in the 70s, Cher was always following me around. And I got in a couple of fights with Greg Allman's moustache over Cher's advances. And Mackenzie Phillips was another one. Oh, she was a wild child, but she loved, she loved the moustache. Rhoda. The, the, the lady who played Rhoda, I, I'm not even really too sure what her name was. I just called her Rhoda, and, and she loved that. Uh, Linda Ronstadt was another one, which is going to be a little bit awkward since she's going into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame the same time that, 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 that I am. Uh, be Arthur. Oh, Bea Arthur, was she ever a randy little vixen when she would put on that, that boudoir lingerie? My goodness, but I mean, it was pre-AIDS, so everybody was doing everything. The debauchery was out of control, and everybody knew that Oates' mustache was right in the middle of everything, giving out my patented mustache rides, and believe me, I don't have to explain to you what that entails, but I mean, I try to, to, to tell every, every uh, young mustache that I come in contact with, and they asked me for advice, Oates' mustache, what can you say to, to a young whisker in this business, and I say, take it easy, don't go crazy all the time, and remember, this is a marathon, not a sprint, so be careful, and pace yourself, And wear rubber. Good advice, uh, Oates' mustache. uh,
3: You know, that that I think young, like you said, young mustaches have now uh, need to know. Now, you're speaking of, of you're probably the most famous mustache in rock and roll, but there was plenty other uh, mustaches as well. And some of them won Grammys, some of them didn't. I could just go through a few of them right here and get your comments. I mean, Paul Simon, 12 Grammy wins had an amazing uh, mustache in the 70s.
2: Why, yes, Paul Simon had a, a, a quite an impressive mustache, and I was quite angry when he got rid of it. He should have called the song 50 Ways to Leave Your Moustache. I, I, I kind of felt like he left us behind, especially when the original title of Me and Julio Down by the Schoolyard was Me and Julio Oates' Moustache Down by the Schoolyard, because that's actually my first name, uh, Chris, is Julio. Uh, But you can call me Oates Mustache, please.
3: Well, see, that's something that you can only find out here on Talk Is Jericho. That's an amazing uh, bit of information. Uh, Let's talk about another great band that all had some killer mustaches, which was the Beatles on uh, Sgt. Pepper. They had nine Grammy wins. For, for album including album of the year for for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and there was some amazing mustaches which mustache do you think was the best out of the four of them
2: Well I mean you want to talk about the four most amazingly talented mustaches of all time I mean that would have to be the Beatles mustaches especially on the Sgt. Pepper uh, record and the, and the thing is that not a lot of people know uh, rock history fanatics don't know is that John and George and Paul's mustaches actually wrote the bulk of the material on Sergeant Pepper but that's also when the band started getting at odds with each other because Paul's mustache was taking over the faces of the other uh, mustaches in the band and I always felt bad for George's mustache because he had a very talented uh, amazing perfect mustache but it was always overshadowed by the mustaches of John and Paul and and John actually even wrote his, the song I Am the Walrus
3: about his mustache Let's talk about another band that actually has a lot of beards as well as mustaches, which would be uh, ZZ Top, who have uh, two nominations and no wins.
2: Well, the fact that ZZ Top hasn't won any Grammys is, is absolutely ludicrous. But what's even more ludicrous is the fact that here you have a band where two of the members have very long beards, but the only member of the band who doesn't have one is named Frank Beard. I mean, what is the irony in that? I wonder if it says that on his birth certificate. Maybe he should change his name to Frank Moustache. (laughs) Uh,
3: Yes, a very, uh, very uh, interesting point there, uh, Julio. Uh, But let's go to your Grammy predictions. I know you're going to be there this year. Uh, I've heard you're going to be walking the red carpet with Jessica Alba, Jessica Simpson – and Jessica, uh, Beale. So that's a good thing to have, you know, the three Jessicas. But who is your, um, not, uh, your prediction for record of the year?
2: Well, if you go through the, the nominees, uh, Daft Punk, Imagine Dragons, Lorde, Bruno Mars, and Robin Thicke and Farrell Williams with Blurred Lines. And that's that's going to be my choice for Record of the Year because what well, is a little known fact is a nickname for a moustache is a line. A hairy line, but line for short. And there's been many times when I've been messed up on Quaaludes or, or Special K or when I was addicted to morphine shots that I got quite blurry. So it's kind of a little bit of a, of a personal memory. Blurred Lines indeed. <laughs> so I'm going to go with Robin Thicke, who I don't think could grow a moustache. Mustache, if his life depended on it. Uh, best new artist. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, let's look at. I mean, who are these people? Ed Sheeran. I mean, what kind of a rock and roll name is that? I mean, you need a name like John Oates. I mean, that's got rock and roll written all over it. Well, uh, Oates's mustache.
3: I'd like to thank you for for your Grammy predictions, and we'll see how many of them uh, that you get right. Uh, I'd have to say, um, one more question, best rock album, Black Sabbath 13, David Bowie, The Next Day, Kings of Leon, Mechanical Bull.
2: ooh. ooh. I rode a mechanical bull. I used to love mechanical bulls. Richard Gere and myself and his gerbil would ride mechanical bulls in the early eighties when the urban cowboy thing was happening, and we would have we would just have a ball. And then afterwards, we would pull this prank on some of the young ladies, the the little hotties, as the kids say today, as the young mustaches say today. Uh, he would walk into the to the bar without a mustache, and he would start to to chat up a, a lady. And then I would crawl on his face, and he would come back, and suddenly he had a mustache, and, and the lady would say well am i too high or am i drunk or where's this mustache come from and then he would turn around and i would slide off his face and and they would see him next without a mustache and go, oh my goodness what is happening is this some sort of magical trick are you some sort of wizard richard gear but it was not a wizard it was really just me oats's mustache so many amazing memories, but 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 I must go now, my dear boy. I have to find some platform shoes to wear to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony. Uh, but remember, you can follow me at Oats's Moustache on the Twitter and, and contact me there. I'll be looking forward to hearing from all of my fans, young, old and in the middle. And remember my saying, if you want to be Flash, grow moustache.
3: Thanks to Oates's Moustache for his Grammy predictions. Follow him at Oates's Moustache on the Twitter. And, of course, he'll be getting inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame along with Hall & Oats April 10th in New York City.
1: Do you want a beautiful lawn?
3: Welcome back to Talk is Jericho on the line right now. My father, Ted Irvin, is here all the way from outside of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Mr. Irvin, how are you doing today?
4: Heavy on the mister, please. You've never called me that. It was, just, hey, you, give me some more uh, allowance money.
3: <laughs> I got to be professional, though. I can't say, hey, Dad. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Right
3: Hearing your voice and congratulations on the show. Well, it's funny. Um, when the show came up, one of the ideas that I wanted to do was to talk to you obviously, uh, not just because you're my dad, but because uh, obviously, so much uh, history in your career playing in the NHL f- for 10 years, playing pro hockey probably another five, six, seven, eight years before that in junior, etc. Uh, the old days of hockey, you know, the, you always people that have seen slap shot always talk about old time hockey, and that's exactly your era was playing hockey in the '60s and early '70s. Now, I, I know in a lot of ways, any old time athlete will go well, back in my day it was better or this, that, and the other thing. Do you feel that hockey from kind of that late '60s, early '70s period was a golden age in NHL history? Well,
4: from my point of view, naturally, I would say yes. Because of the expansion of the National Hockey League, when, when I grew up, Chris, there was only six teams in the National Hockey League. To right. To make it to the National Hockey League was very difficult, and uh, then they had the expansion and it opened up the doors and dreams of every young guy in Canada. So, uh, so exposed more hockey, more towns, more players from around the world. Started to, you know, promote more players from around the world. So, to me, it was the evolution of hockey. Now. Skill-wise, I've got a lot of admiration for the new guys. Their conditioning is you know, is off the charts. I've never seen people work out as hard as a young athlete does. Uh, their skill level is, is higher. Their systems are uh, more sophisticated than we ever had. But I like to believe that we are pioneers in the game with new players and new systems and new styles and uh, from uh, – we we went through the uh, the finesse-style hockey to the Broad Street Bullies, back to finesse, then to speed. And, and then that started to introduce all the sports psychology and conditioning and uh, diets and everything else. So I, I'm a big believer, especially now, uh, the amount of cards I get from people around the world. I realized, boy, we are at the start of something. People still want to remember that era of hockey.
3: Now, you mentioned that there was only six teams, and that's obviously true, the original six. Was it, I mean, I would imagine with only so many roster spots available, was it really difficult to crack into the NHL? Like, How good did you have to be to even get into the big leagues back in those days?
4: Well, at that time, it was almost, you thought it was virtually impossible. I started with the Boston Bruins, and, In the old days, they they never traded guys. Uh, If you were with a team, you were with a team for almost five, six, seven, eight, nine years. There was a loyalty from owners and a loyalty from the players to stay with that one town, Boston or Montreal or Toronto. So to crack a lineup, it was set. And even though I started with Boston, they had made the playoffs in years. The Mm -hmm. years in the minors, I played with the Boston Farm System. Uh, we went in uh, with Oklahoma City. We went into Boston in exhibition game and beat the Boston Bruins. We had a heck of a hockey club. We had Jerry Chevers and Bernie Peron, so, Cashman. And but
3: Goldberg. what you're saying though is the minor league team came in and beat the NHL big league team.
4: Yeah, and the Boston (laughs) fans are screaming, stay Oklahoma, stay Oklahoma. Our guys beat the heck out of them. We had a goaltender named Doug Favell that beat up Reggie Fleming, which was unheard of. He was their tough guy of the NHL. So why
3: wouldn't they have just brought the the Oklahoma guys into Boston then? Politics?
4: We thought that. Uh, Our salaries would have been better for them, too. It was just politics. You just never, those guys had a job for life, basically. So to break a lineup or to, to even get called up at that time, Chris, to play one game or five games, was almost unheard of hmm. and when you went to training camps uh, you knew who was going to be on that club before you got there and uh, so it was very uh, it was a real honor if you got called up uh, to play a game in the national hockey league and then to be unless the club made a dramatic change but you take montreal canadians those guys stayed in that franchise for 10 or 15 years so it's very difficult to crack an old uh, an old nhl lineup
3: was it? I mean, I remember hearing some stories. Uh, was it possible if you, maybe if you had some kind of a disagreement with an owner that you'd get blackballed and never make it back into the big leagues again?
4: Oh, don't say that word there because the scouts heard you. They would uh, sit you down and say, you're going to the minors. We had three-way contracts. So, What's
3: <laughs> I, a three-way contract?
4: I had a contract for the National Hockey League that I would make uh, my first year uh, uh, 7,500 I had a contract for the, American, uh, for the American Hockey League, which is teams like Springfield and Rochester, that I'd make uh, $4,000. I had a contract for the Central League that I'd make 3500 And then if I was really bad, I'd have to go to the Western Hockey League and make 2500 So wow. they would hold that over your head. If you guys don't play hurt, if you don't uh, you know, perform the way you should, we'll send you down. They had a thing. In the old days, you had to play 240 games to get your NHL pension, eh? Right. We had guys that played 239 games. There was a guy out of Philadelphia that had 239 games, and Philadelphia had sent him down to uh, to uh, Quebec, the minor league. He was down in a 24 hour recall, they called it. So later, they recalled him. He said, I'm still down here. Uh, he never got his pension. They,
3: they, they sent said, him down there specifically because they didn't want to pay him his pension?
4: Who knows, but he never, never got his pension. They had to fight it in court, so wow. you were scared stiff. I mean, the uh, owners and the uh, managers, uh, you, you know, you, you, you had to play. Uh, if you didn't play, you played hurt and everything else. Otherwise, they called somebody up from the minors at that time, and uh, uh, you'd be back down to the minor league on a you know, another making less money.
3: Who was the owner of the Bruins when you were drafted by them?
4: Uh, at that time, I, uh, I think it was Adams. Uh, the guys who were the key guys there was uh, Lynn Patrick, and uh, he was the general manager, and Milt Schmidt was the coach. Mm. Oh, my gosh, Chris, to, to meet an owner in those days was almost unheard of. Really? <laughs> yeah, you never saw those guys. So you're, all your all your negotiations were done with the GM, and then once in a while as you get the, you have a team pitcher, you see the owner, but not like today where the owners are so hands-on. They mm-hmm. so had this fear, so you worked your buns off. Because you, you didn't want to go down to the minors, you were scared stiff. My first year in New York, I was I was room with a minor leaguer, and I realized I'm going to the minors. They've got me set up to go to the minors. I'm not I'm not with the New York Ranger team.
3: Oh, so, you kind of read the writing on the wall because they read stuck the you. Writing wall. Oh, the I first, see.
4: the uh, scrimmage I had, I ran a guy, a great Hall of Fame guy named Jean Rattel. Tried to flatten him, classiest guy in hockey. I said, I got to make this team. I got to get somebody to notice me. So I ran him in a scrimmage game to get my name noticed. Didn't he flattened up. me. <laughs> he was 170 pounds. I was 190, and he flattened me. <laughs> after the after the scrimmage, he came into my room. I was devastated. I figured, oh, I ran the greatest guy in the world, one of the all-time classic New York Rangers, and he flattens me. He comes to my room after, and he says, Teddy, that was the best thing you could ever do. We need a guy like you on our team. Keep hitting me. I said, wow. well, thanks, Mr. Rattel. You know,
3: can you go down next time, please? <laughs>
4: yeah, right. <laughs> Why are you in such good shape? You don't drink beer.
3: <laughs> well, let's let's go back before we get to to the Rangers. I mean, like you said, you were drafted by Boston. Came from from a you know, small town in Winnipeg or small town in Canada from Winnipeg. You get drafted by the Bruins. You play one game, and then the expansion comes. Now, how was that for? You mentioned how hard it was to get into the league and how there was so many politics and how you were scared. Hearing that there was going to be an expansion, basically doubling the teams, must have been like a miracle for you guys. How did you feel about that?
4: We were almost afraid not to be drafted. Uh, I played the one game when I was nineteen years old, which, which is unheard of at that time to come from Western Canada, and uh, and play a game in a National Hockey League. So I got my one game in, and then I went to I was signed pro when I was nineteen, and I ended up playing in the Boston system, in Minneapolis, and Oklahoma City, and then. The, Expansion came '67, so we sat around at home with the TV and the radio on, just waiting for your name to be drafted or called. And I remember Los Angeles called up my name, and it was surreal. What is this all about? I'm going to go get a chance to play in the National Hockey League. You know, just it was so exciting and nerve-wracking. Very emotional, also at that time, to think, "Wow, I really gonna get an honest chance to play in the National Hockey League."
3: So, when you got drafted, I mean, how was your team? How, actually, how did they do that? So, so it went from six teams to twelve, obviously for business reasons. And so, did they have just like an open pool of players, or could each team uh, protect like ten players, but ten had to go into the draft, or how did that work? Do you do you remember?
4: Yeah, the, the National Hockey League teams still to this day still protect what they own. And they protected they were allowed to protect fourteen or sixteen guys. The rest of the guys in their organizations went into the pool for the draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had, you know, lots of like say from the American League, the Central League and the Western League, a lot of players out there that were available for draft at that time. And Los Angeles Kings uh selected myself. Terry Sawchuck was the number one pick, though. The all-time great shutout leader for a lot of years, mm-hmm. and then he was our number one pick. And so I was picked off the Boston, and then they could only lose so many guys. But a lot of my teammates went to Philadelphia, St. Louis, and that because uh, we had good teams when we were in Oklahoma City. So a lot of Minnesota guys ended up there. Billy Goldsberry, which is instrumental in you in your career, and uh, <laughs> so we ended up going to to Los Angeles. Now, funny thing is, when I get to Los Angeles. Los Angeles Kings was the owner named Jack Kent Cook, and I call him Mr. Cook because he's one of the classy men. He was a Canadian guy that owned all the newspapers, and he owned the Los Angeles uh, Lakers at that time and part of the Washington Redskins and the Los Angeles Kings. Mm-hmm. To develop a farm team, he bought a guy's team in Springfield named Eddie Shore. <laughs> Eddie Shore was the old, tough, one of the toughest guys that ever played hockey. He had a club in Springfield. So Mr. Cook went in and bought Eddie Shore's list of players. Eddie Shore was not only tough, but he was also a very mean man. So in those days, he used to sign players. And if they didn't make his team after one or two games, he would never let that player go. So there's guys in Winnipeg to this day that played one or two games pro and were never allowed to go anywhere else. Eddie Shore would not release them.
3: So so they weren't good enough to play on his team, but he didn't want them going anywhere else and proving him wrong. He
4: wouldn't let them go. He wouldn't let them go. So when I went to training camp in L.A., there was over 80 guys at camp because Mr. Cook had bought Eddie Shore's list. And all these guys showed up at camp that hadn't skated in years. Wow. Rusty skates, old equipment, just for that one chance to skate again. But we had a lot of players from Springfield, like the Dale Ross and the Bill Whites, and the, who became key to our hockey club. So that was how we started a lot wow. of Angeles Kings with all those players.
3: So, uh, was it, you know, you see expansion teams now. I mean, there hasn't been, uh, uh, you know, a true expansion team since I think maybe the Columbus Blue Jackets or something like that. But was your team any good uh, when you first started? Was there a lot of work? Or was there, like, who were the big stars? You said Terry Sawchuck. He obviously was kind of a ringer. Was he kind of still in the peak of his career? Was he kind of a little bit on the downslide, or how was how was he as a player at that point?
4: He was he was still competitive, but he was on the downslide a little bit. Eh? Mm-hmm. Uh, Terry Sawchuck was a very quiet man, one of the meanest goaltenders I ever played with and against. Mm. Uh, at that time, the old goal sticks at the base had a – it was almost like a triangle. It was like a point – and if you got in front of the net, he'd hit you with the, 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 that corner of this goal stick, which is very heavy, on your ankle bone. Wow. You're in front of the net. He could fight, and, but he was our key guy. Uh, unfortunately, when I, we got to Los Angeles, we had an old guy named Red Kelly, one of the, again, a classy man. He was our coach, but our manager at that time uh, didn't give us any money. Uh, we had no cars when we got there, and we had no place to stay. So we were literally sitting in the hotel rooms eating crackers from the restaurant because we had no, they didn't give us our meal money. Wow. Uh, the, uh, the general manager's mad at us. Terry Sachuk called him up one day and said, I'm leaving. I'm leaving this team. You can't treat these young guys like that. And that's when Mr. Cook got involved, came down to the rink and met with us, heard our story that we hadn't had any paychecks for 15 days almost. And, uh, so he uh, immediately the next day, give us keys to rental cars, found us places to live, and give us money to basically live now, on. That, Checks have been predated fifteen days
3: ago. That's just insane. That that they it's it's almost like you know some kind of a Nazi detention camp or something like that. Like it was really you could never get away with that nowadays.
4: Yeah, I, yeah, I'm sure the Nazi detention camp were. Or worse than what we had, but we were, we were scared, though, and you never said So our, our, ne- our number one pick was after Terry Sarchuk was a guy named Gordon Lebossier Then we had Eddie Joyle. We never had any real-name guys, so we had no clout at all mm-hmm. when we were down there. And being stuck down in L.A., nobody knew what hockey was anyhow. Uh, the L.A. form had not been built yet. We played all the Long Beach uh, arena down there for the first couple of games. So nobody knew who we were. Our first games when we played in uh, when the league started, we played against Toronto or Montreal. The place would be packed, but it'd be all Montreal sweaters or Toronto sweaters. Mm. Nobody had a clue who we were.
3: Right, right. Now you mentioned one thing too. I was wanted to bring up with Tom Terry Sawchuk and he had the, the the blade on his stick. Now this is still in the days when the goaltenders wore no masks. Correct. That's correct. I mean, how could you play goalie and not wear a mask? I mean, how was that even possible to do? It sounds completely insane. In this day and age, to think that someone would play goaltender and not have some kind of protection over their face—well,
4: have you ever seen my shot? (laughs) But but at that time, we were taught to keep the puck down, and sure, there was always deflections and stuff like that. So the shots at the head, like in practice or warm up, your coach and general manager used to watch us. In warm ups, if we ever shot at the goaltender, you'd be—you know—at his head, you'd be benched. Hmm. Uh, so we were taught to keep the pucks down. But those guys took some wicked, wicked cuts, no doubt about it. But we had a lot more respect at that time as far as keeping the puck down, and we didn't have the big curved stick until Bobby Hall invented it. So, the you know, our shots were more wrist shots, and, you know, to try to take a slap shot from the blue line was unheard of. It would be embarrassing. It would never make the back of the net.
3: But you, you mentioned Bobby Hall invented it. I mean, how do you mean he invented it? He just showed up one day with a curved stick and said, look what I, look what I did?
4: No, he uh, his stick cracked one day in practice and hmm. it bent into kind of a U-shape U and it wasn't totally broke and it was U-shaped and, U and he took some shots with it and all of a sudden that puck was coming off the stick so quick, so high, so fast that he started to take the next day of practice, he took a regular stick and started to heat it up on the end of the blade and started to make a little warp on it and that's what started the, the hook.
3: Was there anybody that ever kind of questioned that and said, is that allowed
4: no, just uh, assumed because no, it? uh, it'd be like equipment. you never questioned equipment at that time. oh they, 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 they then put a measurement in your hook, the hook could only be so much mm-hmm. now they're, you know now they're checked all the time. your hook can be only so much in, 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 uh, in an angle type of thing. Wow. but at first, when he came out, it was like a boomerang. Like wow. when Bobby Hall shot a puck. I mean uh, you know Bobby, and uh, you know, when he played in the Chicago Stadium, that rink was fifteen feet shorter. So when he got the center ice and he shot a puck it was like being at the blue line. Hmm. His first shot at most rookie goaltenders was right at their head. Really. And he would just ring it off right at their head and cuz the rink was smaller it would catch the glass and it would ping all the way back down to the other end. Next time Bobby come in the goalie would be standing on his toes and Bobby <laughs> would put it on the ice. <laughs> Yeah, Smart. So, but that's what the, the, his stick. And, and also, Bobby had about 20-inch arms also. So
3: so if he was the first one to put a curve in his stick that started raising the puck and started creating some danger, or at least some real intimidation factor for these goaltenders, who was the first goaltender to put on a mask uh, that you can recall?
4: Well, it was Jacques Plante. Mm, okay. Jacques Plante, because again, at that time, you only had one goaltender on most teams. You didn't have a backup because of salary. Oh. Usually your trainer was your backup.
3: Oh wow! The, the so, trainer, like the guy who taped you up and, and gave you a stitch if you needed
4: one—if uh, uh, he had that ability, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or he snapped an ammonia sniffer in your in your nose to bring you to when you had a broken ankle. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, but yeah, it would be uh, your most times your goal. Your trainer would be out in practice with you sometimes if the goalie couldn't make it. Wow. And so, he, and so Jacques Plant, when he was with Montreal, he got hit in practice, and uh, he had started to make a, a, a goal mask. And I think it was Toll Blake was the coach, and Jacques uh, says, I'm not going back in this game without a mask. He says, oh, you're going with a mask, you're not playing again. He says, "Then you don't have a goaltender. Hmm. So they let him wear it.
3: And, did he make uh, it himself, or where did he find yeah, this mask? Oh, map?
4: yeah, a friend of his had made it. It was just uh, it was no difference in the things you used to try to make. Uh, it was right. of plastic, basic, but that's what started it all. Wow. And, and then Jerry Cheevers made it more famous, because it was just a piece of plastic. But Jerry Cheevers put all the stitches on his on his mask, remember? and he had this whole mask with stitches where where the puck hit him in the head and he would make little he, black marks where the stitch
3: would be he would write uh, make a stitch mark on the mask yep. where the puck hit him so that so if he hadn't had the mask he would have had stitches there
4: exactly right
3: exactly <laughs> so so this is kind of what I what I was saying hockey was kind of changing back in that point in time cuz guys were getting more inventive and you mentioned you know a guy like Bobby Hull getting stronger what was it like when Bobby Orr came into the league or when Bobby Orr started basically becoming, uh, you know, the type of a defenseman that would rush down the ice and, and score goals. You didn't, you or nobody in the NHL had ever really seen anything like that before. Is that correct?
4: Correct. Uh, we would always like Bobby. I was supposed to go play in Oshawa with Bobby Orr when mm-hmm. I was 19. And, uh, We'd all heard about him the six fifteen or sixteen year old kid that could skate like the wind and being very smart. And when he got when I got to Boston he was at Boston camp. He could skate like the wind. He was almost bull legged, eh? mm. What he did which was unheard of was most defensive players never went a defenseman went across center ice. Their idea was to block shots, get the puck up the forwards, and get back quick. What Bobby changed the game was Bobby could get back quick, and he'd turn around, and he'd be leading the puck up the ice. We were taught in New York to throw it in his corner and hit him. My old teammate Pete Stemkowski and I, let's hit him. We Hmm. threw it in his corner, and we'd run and hit him. And we'd turn around, and he'd be leading the pack up the ice. He was so quick and so smart. And we'd be standing back in the other end and say, where'd he go? (laughs) But he changed the game because he could skate like the wind. So when he got across center ice... He was offensive-minded then, but he had enough speed to get back before we would recover and lead our own rush. The only guy that ever did that before was a guy like Doug Harvey. Mm -hmm. Doug Harvey was one of the original guys that do that, but most guys were taught you only go so far up the ice, you're a defenseman. So he changed the game. There's no doubt about it, and that's what his biggest credit was, of changing the game of hockey because he could skate, and he went up the ice, but then he got back.
3: Wasn't he also kind of a, a very rough player?
4: Uh, if you see me on YouTube, you'll see me give it to him. Uh, <laughs> not really. Uh, yeah, he was he was a good fighter, and, but those days with Boston, it was like Wayne Gretzky in, in the past era. You would never get close to Bobby Orr. I mean, Teddy as
3: far Green- as you did, have people protecting him?
4: Yes, Teddy Green would be there so quick. Wayne Cashman would be there so quick. these guys would react so quick because they knew that was his bread and butter. Wow. And, but Bobby could throw him. Don't ever kid yourself. But his downfall was his knee
3: uh, early on in his, in his career, right?
4: Early on his career. And unfortunately it may have started right in Winnipeg. We had a friend of ours that, uh, that tried to commit suicide as a hockey player. And we had a charity game in Winnipeg. This guy was a former teammate of Bobby. We phoned Bobby. He came in to play the game for us as a charity game. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, He phoned another guy named Wayne Gretzky who came in and played that game. And during that game...
3: An 18-year-old Wayne Gretzky.
4: 17.
3: 17, wow.
4: Remember the old story Bobby Plager used to say he was so young he went to the bar and ordered scotch and (laughs) wawa. But what happened was that Bobby was behind the Winnipeg net on the ice, and the ice gave way, and that's when we think he first tweaked his knee. But he came in free of charge, and all the guys did. Ken Dryden, the former goaltender, he came in and played, so... But Bobby was class, 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 and uh, uh, you, one of those guys that you, you wish you played with.
3: You know, in um, it, you know nowadays they have you know video games. where you can have dream matches, and you know, Mike Tyson versus Ali or whatever. Who in their prime? I mean, this is kind of a hard question because there's different styles. But in their prime, do you think Bobby Orr was better than Gretzky? Wow, Good or question. or I, I shouldn't say better, but do, if you were going to say, who's the best player in NHL history, and obviously everyone would say Gretzky, it's obvious, would the top three be Gretzky, Lemieux, and Bobby Orr, in your opinion, or, or who do you think would be in there?
4: Well, see, i I, I got to throw Gordie Howe in there. Okay. You know, because uh, he was just an all-around. You know, He could score. He was tough. He was physical. He intimidated. Uh, I, I find like Lemieux was skilled. He wasn't an intimidating guy, but he was – he was a game breaker also, mm-hmm. so, but uh, uh, Gordy Howe to me was an intimidating man on the ice. He changed just because of his demeanor on the ice.
3: Did you ever uh, play against Gordy Howe?
4: Oh sure, my first game in Los Angeles Kings. I was uh, I was in the lineup first shift against the great Gordy Howe. What? I was 180 pounds, and Terry Sachuk, my goaltender, who has been Gordy Howe's teammate for a thousand years, says <laughs> to me, "Watch out for him, kid." Right at the face-off in the Los Angeles Forum, I'm looking at, here's the guy I listened to on the radio, no neck, blinking at me. And he looked up at me and said, "Jeez, kid, is it ever hot in here? It'd be nice to go for a cold beer after the game, eh? And I looked at him and I said, yes, Mr. Howe, and he elbowed me right in the head. <laughs> and then when I got traded to New York Rangers, my first shift was against my first game was against Detroit. Gordy knocked out both my contact lenses in two different shifts. So, wow. yeah, I know who he is.
3: <laughs> what, what team was he on at the time? At that point, Detroit. you know, it's funny. Uh, I played a um, a celebrity game at the Staples Center back in 2002, and it was like you know celebrities against uh, NHL guys. And Gordy was there as a guest ho- uh, coach. And I just bought a brand new pair of elbow pads, and uh, Gordy said, "Oh, those are nice, uh, nice new elbow pads you got there." I said, "Thank you, Mister Howe." He said, "You know what they're missing?" I said, "What?" He said, "A pair of teeth marks in them." <laughs> <laughs>
4: Yeah, he was a special, special hockey player on top. But you talk about, you know, Orr and Gretzky. Gretzky to me was, I think Gretzky saw the ice better than any player I saw. He knew where your body was going to go before you knew where it was going to go. And uh, he just had an unbelievable sight on the ice of where his teammates were coming from, to pass the puck like you wouldn't believe. So I think his vision of the game was better than anybody I saw. Mm -hmm. I think Bobby Orr changed the game from an offense, defense style of hockey. And I think Lemieux started to show us what a big man can do with great hands. Mm -hmm. There's not too many big men would have the hands like uh, Mario Lemieux.
3: Do you see anybody in the league uh, now that that has any of those qualities? That's that's kind of... um, I mean, we know that the game has changed because guys are so much bigger now, but is there somebody that stands out as that type of of, of Gretzky type of player that's dominating?
4: Well, I I don't think dominating. I think you've got Jonathan Tays in Chicago that has a Gretzky-style eyesight. You know, he sees the Mm -hmm. ice very well. Defensively, you know, you've got some big guys, but I don't find there's anybody who really stands out anymore that can dictate the game. But the game's changed now because they play they play zone so much now. Eh? They cover one corner, cover another corner. Like, uh, the, the way they check right now is tenacious. Just absolutely tenacious. Every line. Uh, you just don't get the breakaways like you used to. You just don't find that style of hockey.
1: Right, right, right. Do you want a beautiful lawn? You're listening to Talk is Jericho. Welcome
3: back to Talk is Jericho. I am Chris Jericho. I'm on the line with Ted Irvin. We're talking about some old school hockey back in the early 70s, late 60s, some of the uh, differences, uh, how things used to be back then. Uh, We mentioned before, obviously, you you, you started uh, with the Bruins, went to the Kings, and then suddenly you get traded to New York. Now, you mentioned before how when you were in L.A., nobody really knew a lot about hockey. Obviously, completely different the moment you uh, you get traded to New York, which is basically a hockey city.
4: Wow, was that intimidating, Chris? I was in Toronto and they told me I was going to the New York Rangers. I was shocked, and then I went over to Detroit that day because Rangers are in Detroit playing, and I had to meet first with the scouts. And the scouts lay down the rules, and you're going to meet Emil Francis, and he's the boss. And and I met Emile Francis and turned out to be one of the classiest. And
3: he guys was ever. the GM of, of New York. He was the
4: GM and yeah. coach at that time. Okay. And uh, when I met with him, uh, just classy man, eh? how so much money you have in your pocket. It's 100 a hundred bucks. Here's another couple hundred. You can't live in New York on a hundred dollars. And, <laughs> and then I went down to the, to the lobby to meet the bus for the game. And there were all the guys, you know, the Brad Parks and the Vic Hadfields and you know, Rod Gilberts, and these guys are dressed right to the nines. I mean, they had clothes that I could only imagine. Wonderful guys, and I became a teammate of theirs for almost six years. Then to go into New York and skate on Madison Square Garden, to hear that fan, hear those fans, and then to become one of their favorites was the biggest thrill of my life to think that I made an original six team and had a role to play there. It was a, It was a kid's. Dream. I've never been treated better, and still to this day, New York Rangers are my club. But coming from Winnipeg to play in the National Hockey League to play in an original six was a tremendous honor and one of the greatest memories I'll ever have in my life.
3: So, who were the top dogs? And you mentioned a few of them. Was was Rod Gilbert like the most skilled player at the time?
4: Rod was the goal scorer. Mm-hmm. Okay, and very finesse wise. And you had Jean Rattel, his centerman, who was a skilled but also defensive minded and a playmaker. And then you had Vic Hadfield who was the tough guy at that time who ended up to turn into a goal scorer and they had the, that was the gag line, the goal of game. So that was our big line at that time. And those guys to this day are in New York are still you know, idols of people. And we had Ed Jackman and Goal and lots of other good players, which we'll mention, but uh, those were the key guys at that time. And then Walt Kachuka just starting off and Billy Fairburn. And
3: Was Brad and, Park there at the time, too?
4: Brad was there, too, yeah. and uh, then Rod Sealing was a big name at that time. Jimmy Nielsen was a big name at that time. and So we had a very competitive club. We had very, very good years. We just never won uh, the Stanley Cup.
3: Now, what was your role in the team? I, mean, I would almost just say um, you were kind of... An early version of what they call today a power forward. You scored quite a few goals, but you also got in a lot of fights as well.
4: Yes, I, you know, I, I, I had a, the biggest thing with that time. Any good team, doesn't matter what sport it is, finds a role for each individual player, mm-hmm. and each player on that team knows what the other guy's role is, and you respect them. So when I got to New York, they basically put me on the line with Pete Stemkowski and then Bruce McGregor, and we became kind of a Checking, holding line. So a lot of times we'd start the game, a lot of times we'd finish the game because we were responsible in our end, and Bruce McGregor's a great checker. So when I got there, what I realized, you don't just go out and start fighting. I realized I could handle myself a little bit, and I could score some goals, but we had a goal-scoring line with Rattel. We had a, an offensive-defensive line with Kuchuk's line, and our line was just uh, we stood up for the guys. You know, if there was something going out there, Peter Stempkowski was a big body, and myself, we would run guys and get in the middle of things, and and you started to develop a role, and then you could feel in the team, the guys knew that that's what you were there for, just to stand up and be part of the team, and that was the secret of our club, is that we all had a role to play, and the guys respected each other for it.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, and like you mentioned too, I mean that's always the best. Uh, best teams are always everybody knows exactly what their role was on the team. Now you did score quite a few goals. We mentioned you got into a lot of fights. You almost became known for that. And not that you were ever a goon, but you even had the nickname of the baby face assassin <laughs> from the fights that you got into. Can you explain how that came about?
4: Well, that started in Los Angeles, I guess in Los Angeles, they were looking for some kind of Hollywood name. And, uh, I fought a little bit in Los Angeles and, uh, one of the writers out there came back and called me the baby face assassin, so it's still on my hockey cards. And uh, how I got traded to New York was I was playing for Los Angeles, and uh, St. Louis came into town, and St. Louis had some tough guys. They had the Plager boys and they had a guy named Noel Picard. Emile Francis happened to be at both the games. I fought Noel Picard one game. Next game, Bobby Plager challenged me, and I was fighting him, and Noel Picard was trying to come after me, and nobody would help me at that time. And uh Emile Francis saw it, and he said, "I want you on my team." So you did what you had to do at that time. Now let, let's be fair. Now fighting now is professional. These guys are good. If I watch the old fights, we were throwing, you know, we were throwing our fists. We didn't, I don't think we connected that much the way they do today. Uh, but you didn't know at that time if you're a good or a bad fighter. You just stood up for your teammates.
3: Who were some of the um, the tough guys in the league at that point in time?
4: Well, for me, the fun guy was John Ferguson for Montreal Canadiens. Mm. Yeah, because John dropped his gloves before you even had a chance to think of it. He just and that was his role, in Montreal, and he just stood up for those Canadians because you got to remember Montreal, they could skate like the wind. Ninety percent of their team were buzz bombs. They you LaFleur and Le Maire and Shot and these guys you couldn't catch them. But Ferguson was there to protect them. Ended up scoring some goals too. So Fergie was one of the the better ones uh, around. Dave Schultz in Philadelphia became. The the head of the Broad Street Bullies, and he was also like Ferguson. He dropped his gloves so quick that you 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 had to be ready. In those days, you weren't ready that you'd drop your gloves, but not as quick as those guys did. And Schultz could he's one of the better fighters at that time. How
3: Uh, do you mean? How do you mean they wouldn't drop him? You wouldn't drop him as quick. You mean they would just drop him on a second just to fight? They didn't need any provocation.
4: They didn't need any. They drop They drop them right in warmups. They drop them in the. You know, in, in, you warm up before the game, they'd cross the red line, and if they wanted to drop them, they did, because in those days you didn't have the rules and the penalties and stuff like that. Right. So uh, you just dropped them. And uh, for guys like Schultz and that, that's what his job was, and he was going to make sure he got you quick. You never expected anybody to hit you. I mean, the best thing about hockey in a fight was, you know, the worst thing in hockey is a linesman saying, let them go. Because you know, then you got to fight the guy. You always hope the linesman jumped in quick on you. Right. And then you yapped and trash-talked the like best you could, like you're a tough guy. But Schultz and those guys in, in, in Philly, they were loaded for bear before he even, you even know, got to the game. So
3: tell me the story about when... Uh, Schultz first came into the league. Now Dave Schultz, obviously one of the toughest guys in hockey history. A lot of people would say maybe even the toughest guy in hockey history. Famous for playing for the Philadelphia Flyers, Broad Street Bullies, mid seventies. You got a great Schultz story. I want to. Uh, I want you to tell everybody about. Yeah,
4: it. I was playing for New York Rangers, and I'd fought a little bit the year before. And uh, in a, in a game in Madison Square Garden, a scrum broke out in front of the net. And, you know, those days you grab. Somebody and I happen to grab Schultz and he says, "Irvin, I'm up from the minors. I'm here to make a reputation, and I'm starting with you." (laughs) So I started to cry. (laughs) Just grab that other guy over there. I don't want to fight you. Right. So, but I was lucky against Philadelphia because you know I I fought Zaleski and a little bit with Schultz, but I I I I was never consider myself a tough guy, but I could react. And uh, but uh, you know he was a when you went into Philadelphia, Chris, in the old days. You went down a ramp there. The fans rocked your bus. Hmm. You had no overhang when you came out of your dress room. So people poured beer on you and popcorn on you. Wow. In warm-ups, there was always a fear of a fight. The referee stood at the end of the rink. That was the first, That was in the 70s. You knew something was going to happen. Our guys, a lot of guys in the league, got what they call road flu. When you went into Philadelphia, you got up in the morning. I'm not feeling too good today, Coach. I don't think I want to play. And uh because if you didn't stick together, the Philadelphia Broad Street, they could play hockey, but they stuck together as fighters, too.
3: It's amazing because, you know, you think of, of you know, the, the famous movie Slapshot and you think, oh, come on, it wasn't really like that. But from what you're saying, it was, it was like that not only in the minor leagues, but even in, in, you know, in the NHL as well, that there was still that type of just crazy lunacy going on there.
4: Oh, well, I play with a guy named Eddie Shaq in Los Angeles. And, I mean, he was original Slapshot. He used to get and fight in front of our bench, and he'd throw a punch, and then he'd turn his head toward us as the guy was punching them ahead the and he'd say, pretty tough work, eh? Then he'd turn around and he'd throw another punch and he'd look at that, look at us again at our bench and say, how's it going, guys? <laughs> I mean, we had some characters in those days because in those days, there was a role for a guy that could fight. The fans loved that kind of stuff, eh? So, you know, some of the, some guys are brought up. We play against a guy named John Flesh in Minnesota. We heard about this guy from, he was in New Haven in the old Eastern League. In between the periods, he used to, they used to give him an extra 10 bucks to impersonate Elvis. That's how he made extra money. Well, on the ice? He the Minnesota North Stars. Uh, you know, we knew he was a goon. So Stemkowski and I said, watch out for this guy. He was in front of our net by himself, no goaltender, wide open net, and he shot the puck right over the net, right over the glass. <laughs> Everybody started laughing. He took a stick and started hitting himself in the head with no helmet, <laughs> split himself wide open. It went and sat down on the bench, and we all said, "We ain't fighting this guy." <laughs> I mean, there was there was nutcases out there that could, you know. Uh, that that uh, that had a lot of great stories and all they want is that one one uh, shot at stardom
3: what, what was the reputation of the league in those days i mean now it seems that like they finally got to the point where people doesn't think that i don't think that hockey's just a sport where you get in a lot of fights but it's it, from what you're telling me was there a different reputation for the nhl in the 70s
4: i think what it was well the 70s with the broad street bullies it start become more fighting but the 60s early 70s it was a hitting league. I, I, I find you know, we were always taught to hit the defense when they shot the puck. You're always taught to hit. Mm-hmm. I don't see that that much because of the speed of the game and the style. So we were always, you know, some of the defense we played against in those days, I mean, there were cigarette machines with heads on top. I mean, the Leo <laughs> Boyvans and uh, Timmy Horton. I mean, these guys were only maybe 5'11". But 215, 210, and when they hit you, they hit you with your hip and everything else, mm-hmm. it hurt. So when you came across center ice, there was a lot of body checkings. The plaguers, they hit you, you'd go flying so high. Billy Jews, uh, years ago, trauma police, Winnipeg guy, he was known as the beast because he'd catch you at center ice with his hip. You'd go so high. Johnny Busick in Boston, you'd come around your net, and all of a sudden you see his butt come mm-hmm. around the net, and he'd hit you with his hip and it would just hit you in the thigh, and it would bruise you. But it was all clean stuff, and there's nothing worse than any sport than getting hit clean. Mm-hmm. You've got nothing to, to complain about. Eh? Right. So I, I just found the hitting, we were taught to keep our heads up more because at center ice, they, they don't hit like that anymore, but that's the style of game.
3: It's interesting, too, though. I mean, you mentioned you got gotten both your contacts knocked out. I mean, now everybody has soft lenses. Back then, they were kind of hard lenses that would kind of, just basically fit over your, your your eye rather than be a part of it. Did you lose your contacts quite a bit? And if so, what happened? Did you just have to leave them, or did you try and find them?
4: Uh, you always had another set, but in Detroit, when Gordie Hall hit me, my trainer happened to see both of them run the blue line right beside our bench. And I just happened to pick <laughs> them up. And, uh, so we did look for them. <laughs> You'd have a stop in the game, and guys would get down <laughs> their hands and knees looking for their uh, lenses. That, eh? They'd but stop the game days. for it? Pardon me?
3: They would stop the game for it?
4: Well, you, they wouldn't stop it for long, but you, you know, I think my lens is over here. And in those days, the referees were so good, you could have fun with them and laugh with them. And, and when they told you to shut up, you shut up. Eh? Right. Uh, so it was more of a family thing when it came to that. So, But no, nah, no helmets, no teeth. No, you know, uh, that was just part of it.
3: Did you uh, talk to each other quite a bit on the ice, both to your opponents and to your uh, to your teammates?
4: No. The only guy, that we had a center named Pete Stamkowski that talked to everybody in the league that all the guys he played with and, uh, he'd be going up and down the ice, uh, back checking a guy like Alex Delvecchio saying, Hey, Alex, how's your family going? How's your daughter? I heard she got married. and They'd be going up and down. And <laughs> I got in a fight one time with a guy named Jerry Korab and, uh, uh, Stemkowski talked to Stan McKee, the, the shift before. So well, there could be a fight here tonight. And Stan said, Oh, you think so? Urban and these these says, Stan, what are you doing? He's only oh, just letting Stan know there could be a fight. And if the fight breaks out, he says, I'm grabbing him. I said, well, thanks a lot. He's five foot six, <laughs> you know? And you're 6'3, get in and help me. He says, No way, that core up's too big. So, well, they always talk. You know, there was trash talking. are always with. But you, you weren't friends on the ice. When I quit, they had the old six team, they had what they called the original six. And they brought back the original six team, and we went and played against each other for national TV. Mm-hmm. First day it was friendly. We had a banquet. Next day it was just like the old days <laughs> where guys are going to fight, even though they were 30, 40, 50 years old.
3: <laughs> that, that old, uh, that old uh, fighting spirit never goes away, does it?
4: No, there's a guy named Dennis Hextall that played for Brandon that played the Memorial Cup against Edmonton, which was Pat Quinn and Glenn Sather. They beat the living daylights out of Dennis Hextall went to the University of North Dakota, took boxing. He was drafted by L.A. Him and I flew down to L.A. together. He says, Teddy, I'll get every one of them. You just watch the summaries. Every game... Dennis went to Detroit. Every game I'd watch, there'd be a fight, Dennis Hextall, and be all those former Edmonton guys. When we went to that old-time original six series, the only guy he never got even with was a guy named Pat Quinn. Mm-hmm. Now we're old-timers and we're retired. Dennis Hextall went and knocked on the door. The Toronto Maple Leafs said, Patty, come on outside. You're the only guy I haven't got even with. And they went at it in the hallway.
3: <laughs> and this is after they've retired.
4: After they retired. Years John later. Ferguson would kill you if you ever talked to anybody. Wow. He wouldn't talk to me in Winnipeg after the game was over. I mean, he was the general manager of Winnipeg. He said, hey, you're a New York Ranger. I don't talk to guys like you.
3: So it was Not a real everybody. gang gang mentality if you were kind of a, which you were, like, he was obviously known for the Canadians, you were known for the Rangers, and you could, you could never be friends at the time because of that.
4: Yeah, and then after, you're right, that was old. now the guys get traded so much they're sure. friends with everybody.
3: It's funny. I remember we, um, I used to play at that. Uh, it was called the Super Skate. It was a, a charity event that Christopher Reeve had in New York City. And we played at the Garden. I think I did it four or five years, where it would be once again celebrities versus, you know, New York Rangers, ex New York Rangers, current New York Rangers. And the one year I played, I, I said, I'll play this year, but only if my dad can come. And they're like, oh, we'd love to have him. And also, my dad has to be on an, the other team. So uh, that was I remember watching you in warm up when they were playing the national anthem and you were like had the, you were kind of skating back and forth going from one foot to another and had this look on your face like you're having this like a Vietnam flashback or something is <laughs> being back in the garden ready for war <laughs> and then you uh, kicked the crap out of me later that night.
4: Well, yeah, but you embarrassed me because I was throwing them pretty good and you said to me keep throwing them, I'm putting you over. That hurts, I'll tell
3: you that. <laughs> what happened was uh, I used to get in fights with everybody, so I would pick somebody from the other team because it was a charity thing for fun. So my dad and I get into a little bit of a, of a fight, and I'm telling him what to do, like like a wrestling match. I'm like, okay, take a swing at me, and I'll move. I'll take a swing at you, and you move, and then jump on me, and then beat me up. And uh, the people were going nuts when you jumped on me, but you wouldn't stop punching me in the face. I, I don't know what happened there. <laughs>
4: But you know how special that was, Chris, because that was after nine eleven. There, that's right. And we had the police, we had the firemen, we had the uh, uh, the the, uh, the guys from the, the uh, patrol and the mm-hmm. water and stuff like that. They played that game. They were so honored and so excited. It was such an emotional day to be part of that whole thing for for New York City. Well, and
3: that's the thing with New York. Whenever I go back, even obviously for WWE fans, but there's still always people that ask me, "How's Teddy Irvin, How's your dad doing?" Those fans never forget. Um, that 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 you played there.
4: Yeah, for me, New York is, uh, was the greatest town. I, like you say, I still go back there, and they still—if I go to a Broadway show, they're still on here. And that's what's changed so much in my life. As far as I recognize that, you always said to me, "Well, Dad, you were there," and I never put a lot of emphasis on. Now I see what that means. It really means a lot to people that old hockey and. There's only somewhat was there, six thousand guys that ever played the National Hockey League right. in the last seventy or eighty years and so it's a real honor to be part of it and then like New Yorkers are you know I still get that one guy that calls me and says, Hey Irvin, you bum, why don't you fight Schultz? <laughs> That's my own fan for crying out loud. <laughs>
3: yeah, exactly right. Um I remember when I was in E C W one of the first times I got taken out on a stretcher and one of the fans was like, you're, you're just a pussy just like your father <laughs> 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 Sorry about that, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> who uh, who who are some of the more talented guys in the league when you when you played, you know, mid seventies? And besides the Bobby Orr's and the the Vic Hadfields and those type of guys, who else was was really amazing players?
4: Well, Guy Lafleur to me, because uh, of the way he could skate. I mean, mm-hmm. he just broke your back so much, and that. And uh, I love playing against guys like him. Uh, the, the Bobby Clark's I hated him. He was miserable, but I wish he was, you know, on my team a couple times.
3: Now, why do you say you hated him and he was miserable? In what way?
4: Oh, because he was just so chippy. He'd spear you and chop you, and you know, you'd look at him with no teeth, and you just didn't like him because he was <laughs> such a winner, and such a competitor, and you know, uh, you knew if, if you could get to him, he had a chance of beating Philadelphia. You never got close to him. He was just a performer of, you know, he was just a heck of a hockey. player He's the all type, around. the
3: type of guy you hate unless he's on your team, in which case then he's your favorite
4: guy. Exactly, right. exactly. Uh, I had some great goaltenders, like I talked Bernie Perrant and Jerry Cheevers, uh, fabulous winners, just tremendous winners. They were they are great to play against. You know, the Brad Parks. Uh, you, you go into Chicago, you had Stan Makita, you, know, you know, Pat Stapleton, the so goaltenders, like a Tony Esposito. I mean, we talk about equipment nowadays. Esposito was the first guy that used to, you know put a little extra webbing in the crotch of his gold pants when they, people went for the five hole mm-hmm. never went in we couldn't figure out why then the league discovered he he stitched an extra webbing <laughs> between his legs you know that's great the, the old days, equipment the carl brewer defenseman for toronto maple leafs you could never get around the guy till the league caught him he cut out the palms of his hockey gloves wow. when you went by him he grabbed you uh, cuz his hand was bare you know until they said okay got to put the palms back uh, Guys did all that kind of stuff. But Detroit, you had, you know, Gordie Howe and Del Vecchio and, you know, Chicago had, you know, like the Hall. Bobby Hall was just a a treat and a pleasure. Mm -hmm. He was just a classy, classy guy and shoot the puck like the wind. And, and, you know, he was a winner also. And all those teams, you know, if I go to uh, Boston, you had Esposito, you had Cashman, you had uh, Teddy Green and Bobby Orr and, So many quality guys: Johnny uh, Busek, John Belleville. I I played against a guy like John Belleville. I uh, Montreal Forum. I stood on the ice. I was Los Angeles Kings, and I looked at that man, and he was the Senator at that time. He was just so classy, and uh, I just saw Ivan Cornway this summer. And that first game we played against him, Ivan got four years, four goals that game, and. I went up to a van this summer. I said, van, you remember that game that you scored four goals against? And he said, is that all I got, Teddy? Because <laughs> he played with Belleville. We right. chased Belleville around like a little kid on a, on a pond. And, uh, so classic, you know, the Montreal, I guess, skating in the Montreal Forum. Mm-hmm. The ice was like glass. The fans were unbelievable. The history was incredible. And you stand there and say, wow, this is special.
3: Well, and you talk about you mentioned about um, about Boston, and obviously that was the team that you guys played Rangers versus Boston Stanley Cup Final. I believe it was, uh, it was 1972, and they beat you in six games, uh, and that was the closest you ever got to the Stanley Cup. How how was it? You know, the, obviously the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. Do you look back on that and think you know we should have won, or we could have won, or w- were they the better team that that year?
4: I don't know if they were the better team. We beat them in Boston the fifth game, and our, and our motivation was they brought the Stanley Cup into the their dressing room before the game, and they had napkins made up already, you know, like they do now with the ball caps. And, oh, before the and they, game.
3: They, oh, before the, yeah. the game. Gotcha. So uh,
4: we beat them, and uh, I remember I was part of the, the winning goal with Bobby Russo, and we thought we were doing okay. We went back into Boston, or back into New York, and Bobby Orr took the puck and wouldn't basically let us touch us, and he beat us 3-1, to one, eh? Wow. After the game, then you see the Boston Bruins skate around the garden ice with the Stanley Cup. We went into the dressing room after. We didn't have a beer in the room. We really didn't know what it meant to win, I guess. Eh? Yeah. And uh, and you think next year we got it. Maybe there is never a next year. You always think you're going to get back. Mm-hmm. It's the most not, It's the most disappointing thing in my life for a guy named Emil Francis, one of the classiest quality men on the National Hockey League. He deserves a ring, and he doesn't have one. To this day, a player like myself, I'll never touch the Stanley Cup. I've been at many events where the Stanley Cup is there. I will not put my hands on it. Why is that? Respect. Mm -hmm. Absolute respect. I never won it. And uh, so that is my most disappointing. But to be able to play in it at that time is an honor, no doubt about it. But, you know, everybody remembers the winner, not the guy who comes in second.
3: But still, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, that's a real a gladiator, um, warrior type of sentiment. Like, you never you never won it, so you'll never touch it. And that's that kind of shows the respect that you have, not only on the Cup, but of the, your teammates and, uh, and, like you said, of the guys that actually won. That's, that's, I wonder, was it like that for a lot of the guys that you played with, or is that just something for yourself?
4: Still is. Yeah, our guys. We were back in New York last year. They honored our seventy-one, seventy-two team. We all got together. We all sat around closing down the bar like we used to, talking about the old days. And everybody talks the same thing. We never got the cup. Neil mm-hmm. deserved it. We were that close. So, you know, forty years later, that's still so yeah. fresh in your mind. We never won it.
3: Well, let's talk about when you seven hundred and twenty-four games. 154 goals, 177 points, 331 points total. Is there one of those goals? And that's just in, in preseason. Or that's just in preseason. Sorry, in the season for the playoffs, you also had 16 goals and 24 assists. But is there one goal out of all those ones that you scored that stands out to you to this day as being your well, favorite?
4: Everyone was a beautiful goal. Okay, let's of clear course back right now. <laughs> And I remember every one of those goals. I think the there was two things that happened. Was my first goal I scored in Chicago, when I was with Los Angeles Kings, uh, scored on the roll on the road. My first goal, I remember that, you know, because it was my first goal. Second highlight was when I scored in overtime when I was with Los Angeles Kings. I broke a record from 1943. I'd scored in 19 or 21 seconds. Mm-hmm. That one I remember. But the most the most, the best goal that I've ever got, I was part of. And that's the game that Stemkowski and I, in the third overtime against the Chicago Blackhawks, I was in the corner, threw it out to Stemmer. He scored. And to this day, they still run that as one of the highlight goals of New York Ranger history. So to be part of that was very, very neat to me that that will be remembered forever. Uh, I think you saw the, the picture outside the New York Ranger dressing room when you wrestled there. That, yeah. you, know, you, know, you show the guys, there's my dad. It scored part of that winning goal. You can't see me but you can see the number on my skate. That's right. But that was important to me from the fact that fans still remember that as an important goal and a highlight of Ranger history. So that was important. So there's a couple of goals, but I had a couple hat tricks that, you know, that I like, but it was more you know, the the, the, the the overtime, my first one, and being part of a, a glorious goal with the New York Rangers.
3: Well, you had a, a, a lot of glorious goals, a great career, and I'm really glad we got to do this. It was it was, it was a great uh, treat to hear some of these great stories and, and hear a little bit of old-time hockey and hear a little bit of my lineage as I get a chance to talk to my father, Ted Irvin. Thank you so much, Teddy. Thanks, Teddy, for, uh, hey, for Teddy. being on the show.
4: <laughs> Chris, I'm really proud of you, and thanks for... Uh, let me remember all the great things in my life.
3: Thank you very much, Dad. I love you, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.
4: Love you too, pal. Thanks again to my dad,
3: Ted Irvin, for taking the time out to chat today. What a great uh, chance this is. I mean, just want to explain to you to have the opportunity to interview my dad. I mean, it was a really cool moment for me, and, and I hope you guys enjoyed the show. It's something that... I've never gotten to do before. I mean, obviously I talked to my dad all the time because he's my dad and he's been a great, amazing dad throughout my whole life. But the fact I got a chance to sit down with him and talk to him about his career and about his life. I mean, like I said, you hear it all the time, but to actually get a, an hour to spend with him, uh, was a really, really cool moment. So thank you so much for listening to that. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, thanks to Oats's mustache for his Grammy predictions, uh, I might have him back uh, whenever he wants to come. He's got an open invitation to come. You can follow Oates' Mustache at Oates' Mustache. That's with an O-U. Okay, now it's time to answer one of your questions. We uh, talked about the passing of Mae Young earlier uh, today, and I wanted to answer one of your questions about May Young. At Lance Storm, Lil Lance Storm from Calgary, Alberta. By the way, this is the real Lance Storm. He said, with May passing, any chance you could share the story of your first time working with her in California? Well, I mentioned on my Instagram and on the Twitter that I, I first met her in Hayward, California. And people were like, oh, a WWE show. I was like, no, in 92, I was not in the WWE. I was 21 years old. And I was trying to work wherever I could. Uh, my dad was... Spending a lot of time out there, his girlfriend, who later became his wife, Bonnie, lived out uh, in San Francisco, close to their place called Palo Alto. And there was a show on uh, Sports Channel America called Bay Area Wrestling. Now, Sports Channel America was a national channel, but probably ran in like 50, you know, homes. But to me, national was national, whatever. So I kind of went there and uh, went to get myself booked to just get on national TV and just try and get something going. So I used my uh, frequent flyer points because I'd been to Japan a couple times, I think, at that point and had accrued enough to get one ticket. I think back in those days you could get a ticket for 10,000 points. Went to Hayward, uh, got booked on the show, and I I had three matches in one night, uh, lost two of them and won one of them. It was in a TV studio with about 50 people in it, and if you jumped too high, you would go through the roof. you jumped too high off the top, rope you'd go through the roof which i did and um the second match was against a guy called the spanish hitman who was a big porky chubby guy uh really not very good total mullet but of course i was the new guy coming in and and you know the idea was for me to put him over which was fine i had to lose the match but his his manager was johnny may young and i saw this on the card on the wall spanish hitman with johnny may young i'm like well who the hell is johnny may young where is he and I'm looking around for this, you know, it kind of sounds like a, like a greaser or something. And then this old lady, so she was probably, I guess, 70 at the time or 69, or 70, came up to me. And she's like, I'm Johnny May Young and I'll be working with you. What do you want? This is what we're going to do. And I'm like, what the hell is this? This old lady? And the finish was that she was going to pull my foot. I was going to fall, you know, trip and fall into his big fat splash or whatever it was. So I'm thinking, okay, whatever, and then she's going to come in the ring after, and they're going to tap dance on me, beat me up a bit. I'm like, okay, this is going to be terrible. This old lady's going to, like, you know, what the hell is she going to do? Is this some sort of rib? So she comes, you know, the finish comes. She trips me up, and I fall into the fat splash. And then she comes in and starts kicking the crap out of me, like putting the boots to me big time. And I was, like, I I was turtling. Like, I was covering my head, like, what the hell is going on? What is hitting me here? And it was Johnny Mae Young coming in to beat the crap out of me. Uh, after the match, just laughing, like cackling.
2: <laughs>
3: so I was scared of her from that moment on. When I saw her again in the WWE seven years later, eight years later, uh, I turned around and ran screaming. <laughs> but she was a great lady and up for anything, whether she was getting power bombed off the stage through a table by Bubba Ray Dudley, uh, whether she was given a Bronco Buster to Eric Bischoff, which the rumor was that Vince had her put, like, a uh, tuna fish in her pants when she did that. I don't know if that's true or not. And the, uh, yeah, no, it's gross, but that's... That's how it goes. <laughs> and then the other one was uh, uh, she caught me spying on her in the shower, which I thought it was uh, Trish Stratus, but it was really Mae Young. And this is all part of the show, by the way. This is the soap operas that we were doing at the time. But God bless you, Mae Young. You're a great lady and a true professional that was always up for everything and will never forget you. Much respect. Yeah. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening to Talk is Jericho today, and thanks for linking to the Amazon.com page through the Talk is Jericho page at podcast 1.com Because remember, every time you do your shopping at Amazon that way, Amazon kicks back a little cash to the show so I can do things like have Oates' mustache come on as a guest. I mean, you think he shows up for free? That guy's expensive costs a lot of cash to get Oates' mustache on this show. So go to PodcastOne.com, click on Talk is Jericho, and then click on my Amazon link to help me keep this show running for free for you. It's the easiest way to support this show. Thank you for supporting. Thank you for listening. This is your remedy for boredom. The pot of thunder is over. We'll see you next week right here. Stay cool. Stay calm. Stay heavy. Stay hungry. We love you all. God bless you. You're the greatest.
2: Yeah,
1: boy! Thanks for listening to Talk is Jericho. Don't forget, every Wednesday there's a brand new episode of Talk is Jericho at PodcastOne.com.